Well, as if to prove that everything is spiritual, I learned a profound lesson just a few weeks ago on this stage as I was preaching. Some of you might have been here for the service where I was in the middle of my sermon and I was wearing an Apple watch and Siri started talking back to me in the middle of my sermon. <clears throat> Apparently she was on the edge of her seat for what was happening in the message that day and, and I lifted my arm up and just at the exact moment that I was saying something, Siri started talking back to me coming through the microphone. Now I didn't, I didn't throw a fit, but I did throw my watch. I was so irritated, and part of that is just my own attention span. I'm so focused when I'm preaching. I'm so focused on what I'm saying and what I'm about to say that any distraction kind of throws me. It's like, oh, something shiny. And I was, I was so irritated, but here's what I learned. Siri was responding to my voice just in the wrong way at the wrong time. And I realized there are a lot of times when I have done that in my relationship with God. A lot of times I have responded to what I know God is saying, but I've done it in the wrong way or at the wrong time. I think part of living out our Christian faith is learning how to respond faithfully, quickly, and obediently when God is leading us, where God is leading us. And what I've discovered is that most of the time, say most of the time, most of the time, I know what God wants me to do. It's not as complicated as I try to make it sometimes. I want you to turn to your neighbor and with passion and enthusiasm tell him, it ain't that complicated. I think this might be the primary lesson from the life of a guy by the name of Noah. Now, most of us, I think, have at least heard of Noah and the ark. You know, it was a good man, it was a big boat, animals two by two, God tells them there's going to be a flood, there comes a flood, 40 days, 40 nights. It's such an epic story that even the modern day theologian Russell Crowe made a movie about the life of Noah. Now, let me quickly tell you, Russell's movie was not particularly accurate, Russell was not concerned with a little thing called the Bible or what's actually in the story. He didn't let that get in the way of special effects and what he hoped the story was about. But the fact of the matter is that God saw fit to include the life of Noah in the biblical record. And Noah's life was so powerful. It was so profoundly impactful that not only does it show up in the book of Genesis, the very first book of the Bible. But Noah even gets a mention over in the New Testament by Jesus himself and by the author of the book of Hebrews. So Noah had a lot going on. Here's what the Bible says about Noah in Hebrews chapter number 11. Hebrews 11 is kind of referred to as the hall of fame, the hall of faith of the Bible. It references all of the, the pillars of the faith, those those epic characters that the Bible tells us their stories so that we can learn from. Here's what it says about Noah. Hebrews 11, verse 7. It was by faith that Noah built a large boat to save his family from the flood. He obeyed God 
who warned him about things that had never happened before. There had never been a flood like this. By his faith, Noah condemned the rest of the world and he received the righteousness that comes by faith. So Noah had a lot going. There was something special about Noah's life that set him apart. It set him apart so much that God set him apart. And I think there's something really interesting and important that we understand here. When it says that Noah's faith condemned the rest of the world. Let me make sure that you understand what this is not saying. It's not that Noah was out in the driveway working on his boat and spitting judgment and hellfire and damnation down on his neighbors. That's not what he's saying. What's going on here is that Noah's life, the choices that he made because of his faith, his life contrasted with the culture around him. When you and I choose to live out the Christian faith, the reality is that our lives ought to look different than the people around us. Our lives anchored in a relationship with Jesus Christ ought to look different from those who are not anchored to the power, to the presence, to the peace, to the promises of God. And I think a lot of times we forget that. I think for those of us who go by the name of Christ follower in the year 2019, we need to remember and actually embrace the reality that our lives ought to look countercultural. We, we ought to do what we tell our kids to do and be willing, be, be strong enough to be the only one, be strong enough to be different. You see, the fact of the matter is most of us, everybody wants to make a difference, but very few people want to be different. Everybody wants to have an impact. Everybody wants to make a difference in the world. But the second we start to look a little bit different, the second we start to act a little bit different, we're like, oh, no, I can't do that. I've got to conform to the norm. You know, how many of you have talked to your kids about peer pressure? Can I just see you show of hands if as a mom or a dad, you've ever talked to your kids about peer pressure? Here's what I have found. Peer pressure doesn't go away when you graduate. How many of you are parents know that there is such a thing as parental peer pressure. Can I see a show of hands? Where are your kids playing ball this summer? What, are they, what teams are they going to be on? What are you doing? How are they going to get into school? What are you going to do? You got to go to camp. <laughs> you just want to go, Mom, Dad. Everybody, ratchet it down about three octaves. Let's just, let's just take a deep breath. It's going to be just fine. And we need to be the ones who set the pace. Usually it's our kids following our example. It's not that our kids can't resist the peer pressure. It's that mom and dad don't resist the peer pressure. It's like, you got to be on the travel team. you got to do this. you got to do that. you got to go there. you got to do that. Everybody just kind of take a deep breath. Everybody. I think that's part of God's gift, a part of God's grace in this thing called the church, that we're surrounded by people who are also trying to figure out how to live out their faith, faith fully, and we're reminded when we gather together, when we come together, when we're united in Christ, we're reminded that we do have other people around us who have the same values, who have the same goals, who have the same vision for their lives, and we're, re, we're re-energized by being around each other. We are literally encouraged by being with and around each other. So 
Noah understood that his life was going to look different. And as a result, his life looked different. Now, the flood of Noah in Genesis chapter 6, 7, and 8, I think raises a fascinating question. And you may have heard people ask this question. How could a loving God fill in the blank? How could a loving God do fill in the blank? How could a loving God do that? And the story of Noah shows us how and why God does this. Look in Genesis chapter number 6. Genesis chapter 6. Genesis is the first book of the Bible. This is what the Bible says about God's motivation. Verse 5. The Bible says that the Lord observed the extent of human wickedness on the earth. And he saw that everything, say everything. Everything. Okay, wait a minute, time out real quick. You got to help a brother out a little bit, all right? I know that this is the 11 o'clock service. Y'all have been up for a while. You are properly caffeinated. You know, when the 930 crowd has kind of an anemic response, I understand that. They're 9.30. They just woke up. So together, let's say everything. 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 That's what I'm talking about. There you go. And he saw that everything they thought or imagined was consistently and totally evil. So the Lord was sorry he had ever made them and put them on the earth. It broke his heart. So the Lord observed the extent of human wickedness. Number one, this shows us a a couple of things that are really, really important. Number one, God is in fact a judge. God absolutely will judge you and me. That's part of his responsibility as the King of Kings, as the Lord of Lords. God does judge. The, the, The Old Testament I'm sorry, the, the old version, the King James version of 1 Peter chapter 4, which is in the New Testament, it says that God will judge the quick and the dead. Now, in the King James version, the quick and the dead, the quick doesn't mean that you're quick as a cat like I am. Quick and the dead, the quick just means that you're living. If you have a pulse, if you have breath in your body, God will judge you. He will judge me, absolutely. So that means that what we do, actually matters. It's not, isn't it interesting, have you ever noticed that usually we judge other people by their actions, but we judge ourselves by our motives? How many times have you said to somebody, I didn't mean it that way? Oh, I didn't didn't mean to hurt you. I love this one. This is my favorite one. This is kind of what, I don't know who, who authored this. I apologize if I offended anyone. That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard of. That's not an apology. That's not owning responsibility. When you apologize, you say, I'm sorry that I hurt you. Now, it may be that you didn't, it may be that you meant to, but you just got caught. But we judge our actions, not just our motives. God will judge you. He will judge me. Here's the great thing about God. He's never wrong. I could judge and be wrong. You could judge and be wrong. God is never wrong. The other day, 
I was walking through the kitchen, and, and Julie was back in the back of the house somewhere, and it just kind of hit me. It was like middle of the afternoon. Does anybody ever have like a sweet tooth in the middle of the afternoon? So this is where I found myself. And I went to the refrigerator, and I pulled out a, a brand-new tube of cookie dough. How many, let me ask you a question. This is a serious question. Thank you very much. I appreciate the support. How many of you, your cookie dough never makes it to the oven? Can I see a show of hands? Thank you very much. Thank you. Well, this one wasn't going to the oven either. I went and got a serrated knife, cut it down the middle, because you got to put it in the baggie to store for later. And I got a spoon, and I just scooped out a big old hunk of chocolate chip cookie dough out of the tube. And as I was putting it into my mouth, Julie walked into the kitchen. She walked into the kitchen and she looked at the remnants of the wrapper there on the counter and the spoon going into my pie hole. And I just looked at her and went, don't judge. <laughs> this is what she said. She goes, oh, I'm judging because you're not sharing. <laughs> A godly wife, who can find? I did. We don't like each other to judge us, but don't miss the fact that God does judge we will be judged. The flood was an expression of God's justice, of God's judgment. But it also shows you how God feels about sin. What did it say in Genesis chapter 6? The Lord was sorry he had ever made them and he put them on the earth. It broke his heart. So sin not only evokes God's anger and wrath and judgment, which it does, but it also breaks his heart. It grieves the heart of God. And I think it grieves the heart of God because he loves us so perfectly, so unconditionally, so as a good father. And he knows that my sin, your sin, is literally our undoing. Our sin is our undoing. You see, the Bible tells us in Jeremiah 29 that God has plans all of us. I know the plans I have for you. Plans to give you a hope and a future, not to harm you, but to prosper you. This is the heart of God for every person he creates. He knows this. And so when we sin, it breaks his heart because it undoes the plans that he has made for us. It takes us out of the operating zone where he's going to do what he's going to do, but it removes us from that positioning of being able to be blessed by him, being able to be protected by him, being able to be guarded by him, being able to be provided for by him. And it breaks his heart because he knows that you were created like I was created for a relationship with him, that every expression of our lives, the, the, the things that we enjoy, the challenges, the hard times, all of it is to be an expression of worship to him. And when we take ourselves out of that in sin, he knows that we are undoing the plans that he has for us, and it breaks his heart. So I, this, this is really helpful to me to understand that this is how God operates, because then I kind of come back and I go, well, I, I don't want to break the heart of God. I mean, he, he's been too good to me. There, there have been too many blessings that I've experienced. I, I don't want to damage what he has in mind. And so this was the beginning of this narrative of Noah in Genesis chapter 6. It, it broke his heart. 
But verse 8 is a powerful, powerful statement. Look at Genesis chapter 6, verse 8. The Bible says, but Noah. Say but. But. But Noah found favor with the Lord. Noah found favor with the Lord. Amen. This is such an amazing moment. Let me ask you a question. And remember, you're in church, so be honest. How many of us, how many of you in the room ever spent time as a teacher's pet? Can I just ra- go ahead and raise your hand. That's okay. Raise your hand. Be, be proud of it. Go ahead. Some of you are like, it's okay. Raise your hand. If you were a teacher's pet, raise your hand. Okay, now here's what's interesting. This is a great follow-up question. How many of you worked at being the teacher's pet? Like sometimes it just kind of happens, but other times, like some of you like, no, no, I'm working on this one. I'm sitting closer to the front of the classroom when she asks a question. When he asks a question, I'm going to answer. I'm going to raise. Those people used to drive me batty. People who are like, Ms. Nickel, Ms. Nickel, I have a question about the homework last night. Shut up. We know you did the homework. (laughs) The rest of us sitting in the back of the classroom with our head in the book, hoping like crazy she doesn't call on us. But if you're, if you're working to be the teacher's pet, you're, you're trying to earn the teacher's favor so that if there's a discipline problem in the classroom, she may give you the benefit of the doubt. Like, oh, no, 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 no. Kristen couldn't have been involved in that little altercation. Not, not no, she's too good a student. Or, or if you've got a, a, a grade in the class that's like at a at a, you know, a 92.49, but you had to be at a 92.5 to get an A, she may round up for you. That's the favor of the teacher. Now think about the favor of God. The favor of God Almighty, the one who is the creator, the king of kings, and the Lord of lords, the author and perfecter of our faith. When we have the favor of God, We have protection. We have divine guidance. We have divine defense. The favor of God. Noah found the favor of God. But how did he do it? It wasn't because he had a favor detector and he just walked around. No. Noah found the favor of God through his faithfulness. Our faithfulness feeds the fire of God's favor. You, you want to experience the favor of God? Be faithful. And again, it's not that complicated. You've already told your neighbor it's not that complicated. The vast majority of what God wants me to do, I already know. It, it is literally there for the taking. The vast majority of it. There, there are a lot of things I don't have to pray about. I don't have to pray about whether or not God wants me to be a good husband to Julie. I already know. He wants me to love her the way Christ loves the church. Now, that I have to pray about. (laughs) To to love Julie with that that kind of complete commitment, that kind of complete submission, yeah, I need I need the grace of God for that. But I don't have to pray about whether or not God wants our marriage to flourish. I don't have to pray about whether or not God wants me to spend time with him. Let me ask you a question. 
How much better do you know God today than you did last Sunday? Because you spent time with him. Because you spent time praying and communicating, hearing from God. Maybe not an audible voice. If you did, I'd love to talk to you because I've never heard that. But, but God impresses things through our thoughts and our minds as we spend time with him, as we pray and pour out our heart to him as we did early in our service. But not just on Sundays, but every day of the week. How much better do you know God today than you did last Sunday? Because you spent time reading his word somewhere, something, ingesting the truth, the word of God. You see, that's, that's faithful living. That's, that's choosing to have your life be different, be impacted because of Christ. It, it, it works in concert, in collaboration with what we do when we gather on the weekends. Think, think about this. Think of your life at, along like four quadrants, if you will. The first axis would be the spiritual quadrant. How, how are you doing along the spiritual quadrant? How are you doing along that axis? Are you up? Are you maybe down? Second, oh, oh, second axis, think about your life physically. How are you doing physically with, with what God's given you physically, with, with your body? Romans chapter 12 says to offer our bodies as living sacrifices. I love the, the NBA draft this past week. How many of y'all watched the NBA draft? Anybody see the draft this week? I love watching the draft. I love it. I don't even really watch the NBA that much, but I love draft night. Because draft night is when you see dreams come true. Man, the draft night, I watch these guys, Zion Williamson, six foot nine, left-handed. We're basically the same. He's like, <laughs> and, and I watch these guys, and, and, and what, what I love too, I do, I get emotional watching the draft. I, that, real men cry. But I, I love when these guys hear their names called and they stand up and they just start sobbing. They just start crying. Like they're just on their, on their mom's or, or on their dad's shoulders. They're just sobbing because they know that all of the work, all of the time that they've spent in the gym that nobody will ever see, now it's paying off. And, and, and they're about to experience something that's going to change their family's lives for generations to come. I love that. I love seeing dreams come true. It's a blast. But there's a little part of me, be totally candid, there's a little part of me that's a little jealous. Because I look at these guys who are like, I mean, they are the top 0.0001% physically on the planet. And I think, man, at my peak two years ago, I would never have been able to be like these guys physically. But I can still take care of what God's given me. I'm still responsible, which kind of takes me back to the chocolate chip cookie dough conversation earlier. How are you doing physically? How are you doing psychologically and intellectually? How are you doing at renewing your mind? Renewing your mind. What are, what's the stuff you watch? What, what do you take in? What, how much do you take in? I mean, binging is, is fine as far as it goes, but I mean, that's a lot of time. 
I've heard. How are you doing intellectually? The fourth axis, relationally. How are you doing relationally? How are you doing with the relationships and the friendships and the family that God has entrusted to you? Probably the best meter on how we're doing relationally are the people closest to us. What, what would they say about how we're doing relationally? Nobody knows how I'm doing really better than Julie. So am I willing to receive influence from her? Am I willing to receive even correction? Am I going to puff up? Am I going to blow? How are you doing relationally? You see, Noah lived life faithfully. Now, in Genesis chapter 6, the Bible records some very specific things that God said to Noah. And, and you don't have to look these up right now, but I just want to read this to you really, really quickly. Jeremiah is not where we are. Genesis chapter 6, verse 14, God says, Build a large boat from cypress wood and waterproof it with tar, inside and out. Then construct decks and stalls throughout its interior. Make the boat 450 feet long. 75 feet wide and 45 feet high. Leave an 18-inch opening below the roof all the way around the boat. Put the door on the side and build three decks inside the boat, lower, middle, and upper. It's pretty specific. But I read that to you to go to what the Bible says next about Noah in Genesis 6, verse 22. This is great. So Noah did everything exactly as God had commanded him. So Noah did everything exactly as God had commanded him. Here's my question. How are you doing on everything? How are you doing on everything that you know right now God wants from you? That everything that God has expressed biblically about how to live your life financially, how to live our lives sexually, how to live your lives relationally, how to live our lives spiritually. How are you doing on everything? Because if you're not willing to do what Noah did, you won't see what Noah saw. Noah lived faithfully. Our faithfulness feeds the fire of God's favor. Genesis 7, God says to Noah, seven days from now I will make the rains pour down on the earth. I want you to think about that for a second. Think about being Noah. Think about God has told you to build this boat according to the specifics that I just read you. But there's no flood yet. Noah's in the driveway building a boat. His neighbors are walking home every day going, Noah, what's up? How's the boat? I said, God said there's a flood coming. Of course there is. You, you go, Noah. But God says, seven days from now, I will make the rains pour down, and it will rain for 40 days and 40 nights until I have wiped from the earth all the living things I have created. Again, so Noah did everything. Say everything. Everything, everything as the Lord commanded him. He did everything as the Lord commanded him. One other thing to remember about God's judgment. As you read this that God will wipe every living thing from the earth except that which is in the ark, in the boat. God's judgment is always right. God never misjudges. He knew the hearts 
and minds of the people who were walking the earth. He knew that they were beyond redemption. That's God's call, not yours, not mine. And God is never wrong, and he is always good. And so it's important for us to remember those things. Verse 11 and 12, the Bible says, when Noah was 600 years old. Isn't that encouraging? (laughs) He was 600 when all this is going on. On the 17th day of the second month. Look at the specifics. This is not like some kind of general mythology that's being perpetrated here. On the 17th day of the second month, all the underground waters erupted from the earth and the rain fell in mighty torrents from the sky and the rain continued to fall for 40 days and 40 nights. The judgment of God happened. But Genesis chapter 8, verse 1, I love this. But, there's a, this is another one, say but. But, but God remembered Noah. God remembered Noah and all the wild animals and the livestock with him in the boat. He sent a wind to blow across the earth and the floodwaters began to recede. God remembered Noah. Never forget this. God always remembers his remnant. God always remembers and preserves his remnant There there was a a small remnant, just Noah and his family. Now, we know that Noah was faithful. We we learned in chapter 9 of Genesis that he wasn't perfect, but he was faithful. And God remembered the remnant. When you choose to live faithfully, when you choose to pursue the favor of God through faithfulness, there will be come a time, I promise you, there will come a moment when you ask yourself, when you ask God, is it worth it? Is it worth it to live faithfully? Is it worth it to be different? Is it worth it to obey everything God has commanded? Is it worth it? And what Noah reminds us is that God always remembers his remnant and it is always worth it. There is never a time That doing the right thing is not worth it. God remembers. Romans chapter 8, there is nothing, height nor depth, breadth nor width, nothing which can separate us from the love of God. I will never leave you nor forsake you, God says. God remembers his remnant. Do the right thing because it's the right thing until it feels right. He remembers his remnant. And then, once the waters had receded, God establishes with Noah a covenant. God promises Noah that he will never again destroy the earth by flood. And he gives Noah a sign of the covenant. Genesis chapter 9, verses 13 through 15, he says, I have placed my rainbow in the clouds. It is the sign of my covenant with you and with all the earth. When I send clouds over the earth, the rainbow will appear in the clouds, and I will remember my covenant with you and with all living creatures. Never again will the floodwaters destroy all life. This is the promise of God. And and the rainbow reminds us of this covenant that God made with Noah and his family, the remnant that he preserved, the remnant that he remembered. 
But I told you at the very beginning, Noah gets a couple of mentions in the New Testament. The Hebrews chapter 11, we've already read, but the other mention came from the mouth of Jesus himself. In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus says something incredibly powerful about Noah and what it teaches us about God. Matthew 24, verses 37 and following, Jesus said this, When the Son of Man returns, it will be like it was in Noah's day. In those days before the flood, the people were enjoying banquets and parties and weddings right up to the time Noah entered his boat. People didn't realize what was going to happen until the flood came and swept them all away. That is the way it will be when the Son of Man comes. You see, God preserved his remnant in the ark. There was, there was one boat. And faith got you on that boat. Noah and his ark are what theologians call a type. A type is something that in the historical record of Scripture points toward Christ in a unique, specific way. And the ark is a type. It points us toward Jesus. Jesus is the vessel of God's grace. Jesus is the vessel of God's preserving his remnant. Jesus is the one through whom the grace of God flows so that we are protected. We are guarded by God's grace in judgment. We will all be judged. The question is, will Jesus be our advocate? Will Jesus be the one who stands up in our defense and says, he is forgiven, she is forgiven, because they trusted me more than they trusted themselves? Jesus is our ark. Jesus is the one that we come to to be preserved. We will be judged. But in Christ and his innocence, his righteousness, we are declared guilt-free. This is what Jesus has done for us. This is the ultimate the ultimate expression of the realities and the truths that Noah teaches us are discovered in Christ. Now, I don't know where you are right now. I don't know what you have or have not chosen to do with who Jesus claims to be. But I do know that now you know the truth. The reality that in Christ there is the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. That you have nothing to fear in Christ. I want to ask you to bow your heads for just a brief moment. And in this moment, if you've never chosen to follow Christ, as a church, we want to give you the opportunity to do exactly that. To step into that relationship that he invites you into in his grace and truth. You see, the, 
the judgment of God can be scary. And apart from complete forgiveness, frankly, ought to be. But in Christ, perfect love drives out fear. The perfect love of God personified in Jesus is available to anyone who would receive it. If that's you, then we invite you just to pray right where you're sitting right now. Just talk to him. Just silently say something like this. Just silently say, Jesus, I need you. I need you. And so I confess my sin to you right now, holding nothing back. In order to claim your forgiveness, your forgiveness, your grace that is complete, and I will follow you from this moment forward. I choose to believe that you died for me and that you rose again with the promise of new life. And I accept this gift. I receive it. Jesus, I pray this prayer in your name. I want to ask you just to remain in a spirit of prayer for a moment. But if that was your prayer, this is the biggest moment of your life. And so as a church, we want to help with what comes next because this is just a beginning. And so if you would, I want to ask you to do just a couple of things. Number one, just right where you are, I want to ask you to right now take out the program that you got when you came in, open it up, and start filling out that connect card that's right inside the front flap. Just fill that out. And you'll notice right below contact information, there's a place for you to indicate, I committed my life to Christ this week. Once you fill that card out, you can just tear it off along the fold. It's perforated. And take that card, and before you leave, when we dismiss in just a moment, hand that to one of our ushers. Just, just place it in their hand. Or if you'd like, you can visit with somebody who's out at the hub underneath the big front porch out here. But the second thing I want to ask you to do is if you would, as our heads are bowed, would you just raise your hand? Just, just lift your hand and hold it up high in the air for a moment as a physical statement of the spiritual commitment that you just made. Because as I said, this is the biggest moment of your life. And so as a church, as your family, we celebrate and honor that. You can put your hands down, but we're going to put our hands together and tell you, welcome home. Welcome home.